Bow with me in prayer. Uh, God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here for this season where we just focus on, on the amazing gift that you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ, as he took on flesh uh, and humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Lord, I pray right now that, uh, that you would be with me and just help me to speak what your word says and that our hearts would be open to it and that we would be ready to receive what your word says. God, God, some of us are here and, and we are just going through the motions and it, it's Sunday, so we have to come. Um, but God, I just pray that, that you would work around that, that you would soften those hearts and, uh, just make us ready to hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I am happy to see that, that all of you survived Black Friday. Uh, how many of you actually made an online purchase of a Black Friday sale? Tomorrow's Cyber Monday. Yes, but, but they were still having online sales on Friday, you know. And I know we ain't flying over. Well, some of y'all might fly over just for Black Friday sales. But uh, they had over 1 billion online, online sales, just online sales on Black Friday. Uh, this year. They expect there to be $602 billion worth of sales, all sales in the holiday season. $602 billion. You know what boys want most? Boys want Legos and video games, right? I agree. I would have been right there. <laughs> Girls want Barbie dolls. That's their number one thing. And, and honestly, on a list I saw of the top ten things girls want, dolls, different types of dolls were the top five. So if you buy a doll of any kind for a girl, you win, okay? It's true. Uh, what do adults want? Adults want technology, iPads, phones, tablets, TVs, those kind of things, right? Man, shopping is fun, right? We like giving and getting stuff, don't we? That's okay. Now, obviously, some people take it too far. And if you totally ignore Christ, you know, that's, you're missing the whole reason for the season and that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's fun to enjoy it. Although I did see uh, one Washington Post online poll that was tracking what people said they wanted. And just above numbers two and three were MacBook Pros, and money, uh, the number one thing that people most wanted isn't really a thing at all. It's happiness. That's, that's what they want. And so maybe all of this shopping isn't really hitting the core of what humanity really needs. Right? Um, and even when we get those gifts sometimes, they're not satisfying. They're not valuable to us. As soon as we open them, we're thinking, what, where can I exchange this? <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, who can I give this to as, you know, and pretend like, oh, look how generous I am. I bought this for you. But no, I'm just regifting. It's very good. Um, it just doesn't have value to us. Uh, I remember as a kid, um, and every time I tell stories about my childhood, mom just cringes because she 
thinks everyone's going to judge her for being a bad parent. Um, but, but I'm here, right? I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, pray for her, because she got Lindsay and me. So, you know. Um, but I, I was a kid. I was about six or seven years old, and, and I had an Atari, right? Um, some of y'all don't even know what that is up there in the balcony, but that's okay. Right. And, and mom told me I could write out the games that I wanted for this Atari because someone was going away to the U.S. and they were going to bring, you know, they would buy them and bring them back. And I was like, oh, yes, all right. So I write out this list of at least 60 games. This list is at least 60 games long, and I'm like, yes, I am getting 60 video games. Uh, but, of course, the person came back, and, and how many games did they have? Two. Not, not one. Two. And I cried because it wasn't 60. Brat? Spoiled? Maybe? Probably. Um, but a seven-year-old doesn't really understand the value of what things cost, right? And I think that happens to us spiritually sometimes, too. Um, it's December, it's Christmas, um, so we go through this routine of coming to church, and, and we sing Christmas carols, and we can just drift through the season, and before we know it, it's New Year's. Christmas comes and goes. We like this story, we, we know it's important, but we didn't really stop to appreciate the gift that we got at Christmas. So in our heads, we, we know what happened, um, but we don't really value this gift because it's become common and, and almost boring, if we were honest. So sometimes we, we need a refresher on just how valuable Christmas was, the gift that we received, and why we should always be in awe and wonder and gratitude. So that's what I want to talk about this morning is how do we know what we really got at Christmas so that we can cherish it even more this year? What is the value of the gift that we received at the incarnation? So I think the best place that we can go is, is the first chapter of the book of John. And uh, in the first 18 verses, we're going to see John is not really concerned with the birth story of Jesus. He is much more concerned with the nature and the essence of the gift that was given. John seems to think that before we can truly understand and appreciate what Jesus did while he was on earth, we need to understand the entire cosmic nature of what was going on at the incarnation. Who he was before he came to save the world from sin. If you miss that, you miss the significance of the incarnation at Christmas. And so we're going to see uh, John show us three reasons. Three reasons that our gift is supremely valuable. First, because of his quality. Second, to none. Second, because of his generosity. And third, because of his family. 
Okay, that's our roadmap. Quality, generosity, and family. So, what's the first thing you check for when you get a gift? What's it made out of? Is this a quality thing, or is this something that I want to get rid of right away? Or is this something that's a cheap knockoff, and it's going to fall apart, and it's going to be useless? See, John begins by explaining to us just how valuable the incarnation is because it's made up of the best stuff we could possibly imagine. He starts off with these words in verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, he was in the beginning with God. John packs a ton into this one short statement. First of all, he goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Even before that, before anything was created, and he tells us the word was there. What a curious way to describe who will we come to find out in verse 14 is Jesus. Why would John use this word, the word? No other author in scripture applies this title, the word, to Jesus. Only John. So we have to think he's using it intentionally, right? There's a, some attention that he wants to grab by using this word. Um, see, the word in Greek is actually logos, all right? And we're familiar with this word, right? We have logos bookstore, uh, logos boats. And so, so we know this word, but, but it's more than just a word on a page. John is using it for a much greater concept than that. And it's not the first time someone has used the word logos to represent something much bigger. See, for centuries, Greek philosophers had actually been using the word logos to refer to these big ideas. Uh, some of them use, said the logos was the cosmic order of the universe, the Logos was what kept the universe together and allowed everything to make sense. There's a lot going on in the universe, right? But somehow it all holds together. Some philosophers called that the Logos. Uh, others said that the Logos is the epitome of reason, the epitome of divine reason. The Logos is the thought process that God uses when he acts. And still others would say that the Logos, as a concept, was the meaning of life. The Logos allowed us to find meaning and purpose and understanding of our lives. But that's just how the Greek readers would hear the word Logos. What does the Hebrew reader think of when he hears Logos, when he hears word um, especially since John is, is using this Old Testament creation language, right? In the beginning, what do we automatically think of? We think Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verses 3 through 5, John talks about how not one single thing was created apart from 
the word creating it. And if we look back in the Old Testament, in Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And that's, that's in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And the word logos is used in that verse to show how everything was made, just as John declares, right? So for John, when he uses the word logos, he is capturing everybody's attention. He is breaking every paradigm for how people filter that word logos through their worldview, how they think about that word. If you think it's wisdom and reason, Jesus needs to replace that. If you think it's the meaning of life, Jesus needs to replace that. If you think it's how everything was created, Jesus needs to replace that. See, the logos is not just a concept, it's a person. And it's not until verse 14, like I said, that we find out that it is Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything that anyone needs, whether Jew or Gentile. That's why he's supremely valuable. So John looks at the pluralistic religious climate of his day, and he boils it all down to one person, Jesus. The same applies to us today. We don't need to look to other religions and pick and choose and mix and match and say, oh, I like this, but I don't like this. I'll take some of this and some of that. Um, Nope. John says, Jesus is the full embodiment of everything that we need to have a relationship with God. There is nothing lacking in him. But how is he able to be so versatile and so valuable? John tells us simply at the end of verse 1, because he's God. He's not just the Logos. He is God. He's not some cheap knockoff angel savior or some lesser divine being as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons want us to believe. Or... Even worse, he's not some little poor helpless baby who was born in a manger and grew up one day to become, oh, this great godly man, and God decided he would die for the sins of the world. Nope. He was God always from the beginning, before the beginning. There's no Greek scholar or philosopher or, you know, anyone who really understands the Greek, who would translate it to say the word was a God, as Jehovah's Witnesses try to say. Their their reading of the Greek is so oversimplified that it completely changes John's intent for what he wanted to say. What John is saying is that everything that God was, the word is. Okay? Not that they're the same person, okay, because he's already distinguished that. He says the word was with God, okay, they're in relationship. But in their essence, the word is God. 
The Son is not the Father, but the Son is God. And yes, I know, we're in the Trinity now, and our brains are exploding, and we don't get it, and I, neither do I, all right? But that's what the Word says. That's what it teaches. Even more reason to be in awe of what happened at the Incarnation. One of the members of the Trinity became a man, but remained God. Okay? Um, But, if you need more proof that the Word is God, jump down to verse 14. John says, And the Word became flesh, that was Christmas, right? And dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Now, if you've ever heard Pastor Lee preach on this verse, you know that the word dwelt means what? Tabernacled, right? Okay. Pitched his tent is what it might literally say. Um, If you're a Jewish listener and you hear the word tabernacle right next to the word glory, what are you going to think of? You're going to think of the tabernacle in the wilderness where God's presence was with his people. That's what the word is. Um, Exodus. We see John, once again, pointing back to the Old Testament. Exodus 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We think of the glory that God would not allow Moses to see because it would kill him. But now, veiled in flesh, we see the Godhead. We see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. John is being explicit and he's leaving no doubt as to the identity of the word in Jesus Christ. Calvary, we got God. We got God. A gift made out of whatever God is made out of. Not to sound too heretical, okay? God is spirit. When Jesus came, we got God in all of his eternity and authority and glory and holiness and humility, and perfection, and power. That is the quality of what we got at Christmas. It's not cheap. Think about the best Christmas present you ever got, and now compare it to getting God. That's why this season is valuable. That's why the gift of the incarnation is valuable. So, we've established that this gift in, this gift is, is God in a person, but how does this person behave? If you, if you get a gift, you want to know how it operates. Fortunately for us, our gift is generous. There's generosity 
Our gift operates through generosity. In verses 14 and 16, uh, we see that he is full of grace and he gives grace. Verse 14 says he's full of grace and truth. Verse 16 says, for of his fullness we have all received. He does, he's not just full of grace and keeps it all to himself. He gives it out and we receive it. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. What is, what is grace in this context? I think the simplest way for us to put it is that grace means loving kindness. We see a parallel passage in Exodus 34, verse 6. As we have seen, John loves to echo this Old Testament idea. Uh, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. When we see uh, loving kindness and truth consistently paired together in the Old Testament, other passages, Psalm 25, verse 10, and Psalm 26, verse 3. There's more, but um, we won't go through all that. Jesus is full of loving kindness and truth. It's one thing to be loving and kind, but to have truth as well. It's one thing to be truthful, but to also have loving kindness is very unique. See, we run into people like this all the time, don't we? I'm not mean. I'm just honest. I'm real. Yeah, I keep it real. Real dumb. Uh, anyway, sorry. We are really good at this in the Bahamas, right? We're full of truth, but no grace. People who want to be rigid with Scripture and hold everyone accountable to what the Word says, but probably not doing the best job of communicating loving kindness as we do that. Because truth without love is abuse. But love without truth is neglect. See, that's the other side. You have some people who want to be so loving and permissive that they neglect to tell the truth. And they still do damage because they're not giving the full story, the full consequences of people's actions. It's lying. It's saying that there aren't consequences but we know that that's not real life, right? Jesus, however, is the perfect combination of grace and truth. And we are the ones who receive the benefits of it. And we should be reminded of that at Christmas. Verse 16 tells us that we have all received grace upon grace. Now, in the context, what he's doing is he's comparing uh, the, the Old Testament law the law from Moses with the new expression of grace and truth in Jesus. But if we notice that the law is just a different form of grace, that's why he says grace upon grace. 
uh, it's being replaced by a better form of grace, right? If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard the church age referred to as the dispensation of grace, right? As though this is just now when God decided to be gracious. According to this verse, and, and Exodus 34 that we've already read, God was gracious in giving the law. Now, was it a challenge to keep it? Yeah. But God graciously chose Israel to be his representative to the nations through the law. God is always being gracious to us. He is always gentle and merciful, even as he brings hard truth into our lives. Even as he has to correct us. He's still generous with his grace. So not only do we get God, we get constant, generous grace. And so now as those who have received Jesus, we experience that grace and truth, and we strive to be this constant expression of that grace and truth to the world. Not just grace, but grace and truth. Not just truth, but truth and grace. And finally, when we get a gift, we want to know what does it produce? The gift of the incarnation produces and reproduces constantly. Through the incarnation, we get a new father and a new family. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So after telling us of Jesus' rejection in verses 10 and 11, uh, in verse 12 he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them that believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, here's where we're going to get personal this morning. Um, And here's something I think that we need to appreciate even more this morning, Calvary, that maybe we have lost a little bit. I loved our greeting time this morning because it it felt sincere. There was there was something genuine about it. Um, and I really appreciated that. See, through Jesus, we are all connected. And there is no return policy. You do not get to exchange your spiritual family. Just like you don't get to choose your earthly family, you don't get to choose your spiritual family. <clears throat> All right? I don't like this church family, so I'm going to go to another one and, and adopt them as my new church family. Um, we're all brothers and sisters. That's why Sister Kathy is sister. That's why Brother Basil is brother, right? We're all connected. But lots of people leave churches because they are frustrated with their family, right? And most of the time, usually it's one person who has an issue with one other person, just one. And then there's a game of politics 
and they try to complain to certain people and try to gather more people on their side to make sure that everyone knows they're right. And if they can't get that, they're out of here. Because it's hardly ever about doctrine, right? People don't leave Calvary because of doctrine, because we're wrong on doctrine, right? Maybe it's happened, but it's rare. It almost always comes down to preference, not Scripture. But there are, there are other reasons people leave. Um, for whatever reason, people start to feel disconnected. Uh, the faces change, and they don't feel uh, that sense of familiarity anymore, and there's this longing for the good old days. <clears throat> So they go someplace else looking for someplace they can feel more at home. And the rumor is that there is a sense that Calvary doesn't feel that way anymore. That Calvary doesn't feel like family anymore. Um, And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we could admit that sometimes we do come in and we do our church routine talk to the people we, we like to talk to, and then we leave without ever really connecting with anyone else. Um, you know how I know? Because I'm bad at it too. And it's easy to see other people's faults that you see in yourself. But since this text reminds us, especially at Christmas, that those of us who believe are a part of the family of God, what can we do to act more like a family? It's great that when we show up here, we greet each other, and there's warmth and there's sincerity. That's great. But how does it filter out once we leave? Um, Here's what I want us to try as an experiment, all right? You can reject it. It's up to you. But I want us to try, find a family that you don't know and ask them out to dinner. That's it. Um, it could be at your house. It could be a restaurant. But I think there's something very biblical about fellowshipping around food. Right? Uh, I was in a small group at school in my first two years at DTS, and, and we were struggling with each other. We didn't like each other that much. We were all different. We had, I had a, we have a guy from Malaysia, a guy from Korea, uh, a guy from deep South Texas, uh, a guy from, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, a black guy from Washington. All right. So the Texas guy and that guy and Texas guy and that guy and te- the Texas guy had the most problems. Okay. Um, and a white guy from the Bahamas which just confuses everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and then we had another guy from South Dakota who was depressed all the time. Uh, and so, you know, there was a huge mix in our group. And there's a dynamic there that, that you don't, like, you can't teach. But after our first year, after the Texan and the South Dakotan dropped out, there was just four of us. 
And our group really started to bond because we started eating meals together. And now those guys are some of my most trusted friends at school. But it all happened because we started eating. And that's something that I think... Yeah, Paul gets it. Okay. All right. So, so I think this is something that we could try, all right? It, it doesn't have to be this month because obviously this month is super busy with immediate family and those kind of things. But, but how about committing to inviting one family out to dinner in January? No structure, no sign-up sheet, right? Why are you laughing? Because that's how we do everything in here, right? We like, oh, we got to sign up for this. Real casual. Um, nobody's going to force you. Nobody's going to come behind you and ask if you did it. All right? Just do it out of your own free will. And, and try it. And yes, it'll be awkward and, you know, you might not know what to say. You can download some conversation prompting questions <laughs> off the Internet. Some people need help. <laughs> All right? Take a board game. Play games together. Whatever you do, whatever you would do with your family, do with another family. And who knows? It might catch on. And unfamiliar families might start eating together all the time and get familiar. How many of you can get excited about that suggestion? I think that's a pretty good idea. How many of you think that's the dumbest idea that you've ever heard? And I don't want anyone forcing me into this familiarity that is in, insincere and ungenuine, blah, blah, blah. Right? Anybody? No one's, no one's, no one's raising their hand. Okay. You want to raise your hand, but you don't because you think everyone's looking at you. Okay? You need to do it the most. All right? <clears throat> I don't want people to see how I eat. They don't need to know my business in my house. Get over it, all right? We're trying to be a family. We're trying to love each other, okay? Um, the reality is... That's a first. <laughs> Because the reality is that people have left the church. And that feeling of family is a real factor. Um, it's not the only factor, obviously. And it's not all our fault. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, but just as John reminds us at Christmas that we are family, we need to make sure that people don't leave because we've been treating them poorly or we've been neglecting them or ignoring them. And they leave. And who knows? They might hear about how much we love each other and come back. So, we've talked about quality. We get God. We've talked about generosity. We get grace and truth. And we've talked about family. All of this comes through Jesus at the Incarnation. We have the best Christmas gift you could ever get. How could we take it for granted? 
Have you received it yet? That's the question. Just because you're here at church doesn't mean you have received it. Verse 12 tells us if you believe in his name, you earn the right. You receive the right to be a child of God. And that just means trusting in Jesus and his work, his perfect life, his death on the cross for sin, and his resurrection as everything that you need to have a relationship with God. That's it. You can do that right now. Put your trust in him. So let's remember that we are a part of the family of God. And we get to show grace and truth. And we can do that by inviting other family members to your table. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much today for your son, for Jesus, for the incarnation and its incomprehensibility. And Father, we thank you for the true benefits of Jesus and, and what his life and death and resurrection means for us. And the fact that we are connected to each other through him. Lord, let us not uh, trivialize Christmas or water it down into thinking that Christmas in and of itself is, is amazing. Just the, the family time and Lord, let us not think that, that it's a, just about spending family time or giving or getting gifts, but that it's really about getting you and everything else that flows out of that from the incarnation. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.